Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm an independent musician and lifelong record geek. And Discography is a show in which I wade through the entirety of an artist's canon releases to see how it all stacks up. And to kick off, I've chosen one of the seemingly hardest to penetrate artists in the history of music, Frank Zappa. And this is the second episode in that series. Discography exists to inform and educate listeners who really want to know more. Frank Zappa was an American composer, and he will either alienate you or you'll want to build a statue in tribute to his musical majesty. In our first episode, we covered the first 12 official releases, according to the Zappa Family Trust numbering system, which, according to Frank, is supposed to add up to one gigantic song when laid and listened to end to end. And it seemed like a great time to do it. Those ZFT-sanctioned CDs are reportedly the best-sounding digital versions of Frank's material to date, and with such a massive catalog, this is the rare period where nearly every release is in print. So I absorbed two albums per week in preparation for this undertaking, and we've so far covered the earliest official recordings with the Mothers of Invention, which had a fluctuating lineup and eventually just became a name that didn't really seem to mean all that much. Frank's flavor, direction, musicality, and socio-political commentary became clearer with each passing album. And here's a nutshell version of some things you might want to know about Frank Zappa if you're just joining us for the first time. Well, there's that rumor that he ate human feces on stage, but that never happened. Frank understood the importance of good urban legends, though. There's often very little difference between albums attributed to Frank Zappa or Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Eventually, it was realized that he'd sometimes sell more records when he used the Mothers moniker, and that explains its occasional reemergence. Each member was very important in their own way, but if you took Frank away, they wouldn't have had any music. No matter how much I tell you about Frank autobiographically, it almost doesn't matter. Once he got going on his quest to document everything that American life had to offer, very little didn't inform his big song. Frank claimed that if you stuck all of his releases together end to end, you had a gigantic composition. This means that his birth in 1941 in Maryland, his first marriage, his second marriage to Gale, his children with the wacky names, these all might have mattered to Frank the guy, but they also informed Frank the artist. Whatever you needed to know about him was in the song. Nothing was sacred or off-limits. He lived to compose. And composition could mean just stringing pretty dots together to see what they'd sound like later, or it could mean making secret tape recordings of his backing band. I mean, if they're in the band, then any sound they create is part of the band, right? Sure, he fought the PMRC. He worked tirelessly to keep his audience informed and registered to vote. He even helped to cool down Soviet and U.S. relations during the Cold War just to help his records get further distribution. 
all of those things are interesting, but yet only the parts deemed important by Frank would be chronicled in his big song. With so much time spent composing and recording, his life truly was the song, and vice versa. Anything not brought up in the music is almost a breach of privacy because, well, how much else is this guy supposed to give you? Now, I have to warn you, Frank, as an American composer and musical anthropologist, pulls no punches. At some point, he will offend you, and at one point, even though I'm a huge fan, there was a release where I was about to jump off the train myself and never finish this. But as a huge proponent for free speech, Frank himself might balk at the fact that I'm having to give a content warning in 2018. His feeling was that there was no combination of words that would actively hurt your life. But he also passed away before the advent of Tumblr and Twitter, so... In the first episode, we just finished chronicling the moment where Flo and Eddie, also known as Howard Kalin and Mark Volman of the 60s pop band The Turtles, had controversially joined the Mothers of Invention and Frank's increasing fascination with groupies and life on the road with a rock and roll band was kind of taking over the lyrics. Today, we pick the big song back up in October of 1971. <laughs> Week 7, ZFT CD number 13, 200 Motels by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, released October of 1971. I kind of wish I didn't have to kick off episode number two with this one. It's going to be tough. I suppose that I should point out that while the ZFT recognizes this album as official release number 13, they haven't actually reissued it, and as of this taping, it's not in print at all. Due to a rights quagmire, it's unclear if this record will ever be made available again, at least under the control of the Zappa family. Depending on how you feel about the music contained on this double album, it's either one of the most essential releases that Frank would ever work up, or it's one you can do without. One thing I can say for sure is that anyone who just jumps into the album blindly and claims to get it or enjoy it is likely lying. Ditto for the movie, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Ooh, the way you love me, lady, I get so hard now. As an album, 200 Motels picks up right where Fillmore East, June 1971, the prior album, the prior movement in our big song, stops. Life on the road with only the groupies can not only be boring, but it can make you crazy. And this album is one long descent into madness. In this regard, the seemingly nonsensical nature of the album works in its favor. If you're insane, how can there be any logical flow at all? The album not only offers the Flo and Eddie era mothers doing plenty more songs about groupies and orifices, but some ghosts of mothers past show up, namely Don Preston, Motorhead, and Jimmy Carl Black, who takes a memorable vocal turn in the western-tinged Lonesome Cowboy Burt. I'm Lonesome Cowboy Burt, speaking at you. Some smell my friendly shirt. Reeking at you, my cowboy pants, my 
cowboy dance, my bold advance on this Elsewhere, Zappa realizes some of his more serious compositions with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra with many classical interludes, possibly more than those hoping for more lyrically driven material would be comfortable with. But this album's pretty 50-50. There's some vocal tracks that run the gamut from crunchy FM radio rock, like Magic Fingers and Mystery Roach, and some surprisingly pretty tunes, like What Will This Evening Bring Me This Morning? There's also plenty of tracks that are driven by the orchestra, like Mysterioso and Lucy's Seduction of a Bored Violinist and Postlude, which can get pretty bizarre on their own. There's something for any type of fan of the early Zappa music here, but the biggest issue afoot is the lack of a cohesive flow throughout the album. Now, one could argue that this is because, at its heart, 200 Motels is ultimately just a soundtrack album, and I'd like to agree with you. Trouble with that theory is that only about half the material shows up in the film itself as they eventually just ran out of time to shoot. Certainly, there were options available to make this a more cohesive listen, One option could have been the explanation that some of these pieces were originally supposed to make up larger suites, which is something that I didn't learn until I did some exhaustive research just trying to figure out when the heck I was listening to. Now, much like Lumpy Gravy, Burnt Weenie Sandwich, and Weasels Rip My Flesh, which are good signposts as this record sort of plays like an extended versions of all of them in a way, 200 Motels does reveal a bit of an internal metronome, a strange sort of through line if you really stick with it and play it over and over as I'd done over that week. And when you find it, you might also have gotten a little tired of the more obvious than usual vocal tracks. I mean, how many times can one hear the recurring musical and lyrical motifs in She Painted Up Her Face? Painted up her face. A dozen provocative squats. And shove it right in. times can one hear those recurring motifs without wanting to yell out, okay, Frank, I get it, she's a groupie. And this makes some of the orchestral music become the most welcome bits. And I don't think that Frank would be upset that a fan walked away with that feeling, but it won't change the fact that they do have to coexist here. Okay, I've talked some about the album, but let's get down to brass tacks about the film. 
It's a technological wonder, but it's an artistic failure on every conceivable front. They ran out of time, key sequences were never shot, the sound is muddy, a lot of guys in the band were clearly never meant to act, and unless you've watched it numerous times and read up on the history, you probably won't have the foggiest clue about what's going on. You're not going to understand why the dental hygiene dilemma sequence becomes animated for seemingly no good reason, why Keith Moon is to be seen as a lady groupie dressed as a nun, and you might even wonder why Zappa himself is only seen in passing. There are good explanations for those things, but they've been told through interviews, books, and thankfully, the exhaustive liner notes of the Rykodisc edition of the soundtrack, but none of it's self-evident, and any understanding that one might glean from a cursory listen to this album is purely accidental. In a way, whatever you got out of it is right because the ideas themselves weren't completed. There's not really a right thing to get out of this soundtrack album. And the movie's such a different animal, one that is intriguingly not considered to be a numbered official release, nor is almost any other visual representation of Zappa's catalog, curiously. So I was tempted not to mention it at all. Unfortunately, the front cover of this album has original, original motion, motion picture, picture soundtrack, soundtrack emblazoned across the top, so I can't just judge it on its own merits. Despite the cluster bang of colliding information, flows, and things that don't seem to go together, there is some amazing stuff on this album. Daddy 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 isn't just a cool pop song, but it also distills the entirety of the Fillmore groupie routine down into a catchy and palatable three minutes. This evening, Bring Me This Morning has a melody that defies its relative obscurity. And Strictly Genteel boasts one of the most beautiful melodic entries into the Zappa canon yet. A few tracks harken back to Holiday in Berlin from Burnt Weenie Sandwich with direct musical quotes, so not only will those bits delight fans that thrive on conceptual continuity, but it'll also be instantly welcoming in an album that's anything but. Now it's my hope that something can be worked out on the legal end to allow the ZFT a chance to get this soundtrack out again. The Rykodisc edition that I've been using to review this may have been pulled from the same original analog edit reels as the LP pressings, but it just sounds relatively putrid. It's doused in digital compression, and that's a tough sell for this album. Classical and rock music call for completely different mastering styles, and it sounds like Toby Mountain just found a setting that he liked, applied it liberally to the whole thing, and then went about his day as if he hadn't just ruined an album that some see as an untouchable classic. The ZFT has had a pretty good batting average when it comes to mastering the early Frank records with a soft touch, at least so far in my journey. And one has to imagine that it would be next to impossible for them to make this record sound worse than it currently does in its 
current digital form. If this is representative of what most of Frank Zappa's catalog sounded like on Disc, I can't imagine how he garnered any new fans at all through that campaign. There are moments on the layered, strictly genteel that all just congeal into one big noise, and after comparing it to a very scratched up vinyl pressing, I found that it wasn't inherent on the original. We have the technology to improve this release, and I hope that at some point the rights will revert back to those that are able to properly take care of it. It might make me hear the album in a completely different light. But there's still one thing nagging at me. Did Frank really just form a version of the Mothers of Invention to take on the road, to sing about being on the road, and star in a movie about being on the road? I think that's my ultimate issue with this period of Frank's work. This band could really, really cook, but instead, they're mostly relegated to some pretty one-dimensional topics. I understand that touring can make you crazy, but 200 Motels is the next best thing for that type of madness. Week number eight, ZFT CD number 14, Just Another Band from L.A., released by the Mothers of Invention in March 1972. As I've previously mentioned, Frank used cuts that were recorded in concert so frequently that it's only occasionally pertinent that I point out that a release is a quote-unquote live album. However, Just Another Band from L.A. is definitely an in-concert recording, and it's presented as such. This makes it a bit harder to look at it as the next song or movement for the big song, but it's alternately easy because it's more from mostly the same lineup that we just got nice and cozy with in 200 Motels, minus the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. You might also remember that I pointed out how I'd like to hear the band sing about, well, subjects besides just being in the band. Just another band from LA grants me that wish. That's both a really good thing and a reminder that I should be careful what I wish for. The first 25 minutes of this bit are a gigantic piece known as Billy the Mountain, and it was likely an even bigger piece when it was performed at UCLA in 1971, as there's a few edits that are so obvious that one can practically hear the scissors snipping. And listen, as a piece, Billy the Mountain is a massive and amazing epic that demands your full attention. There's so much going on that repeated listens are your best friend. If you're unfamiliar with Frank Zappa's work, once I describe the plot, yes plot, of this track to you, you're simply not going to believe me, but here it goes. Okay, so there's a big sentient mountain named Billy. His wife is Ethel, a tree growing off of his shoulder. He's been featured in pictures on postcards for years, and when his royalty check for all of those photographs comes in, Billy decides that he and his wife are going on a vacation. So the mountain trudges across America because they want to see New York. At the same time, Billy's number is called, and he has to take a physical for the draft. It appears to the powers that be that Billy is dodging said draft and intentionally laying waste to city after city. But really, a mountain is just going to wreck some stuff if it moves around. A superhero of sorts named Studebaker Hawk, powered into flight by syrup and flies, is contacted to convince Billy to stop wrecking the United States and 
service in the armed forces instead. I gave him the money. He acted real funny. He hocked up a rock and it totaled my car. Oh, do you know any trucks might be bound for the valley? I don't want to stand here all night in this bar. Dear Lord, I don't want to stand here all night in this bar. No shit, I don't want to stand here all night in this bar. Wouldn't that be a rad movie? Well, it isn't one. To hear Billy's tale, you've got to sit down and get married to paying undivided attention to this track. There's a lot going on instrumentally, but it's very lyrically dense, and most importantly, there are recurring musical themes that are often reintroduced based on certain words that Flo and Eddie might mention in their storytelling. When a big rock band comes to your town, they'll often elicit huge cheers by mentioning the city that they're performing in. This version of The Mothers takes that to such extremes that it's almost impossible to describe. Billy the Mountain is littered with ultra-specific references to towns, provinces, sheriffs, and television commercials from the Southern California area that they were performing in. The audience is delighted, but it can make the average person a little bewildered by all of the inside jokes for whoever happens to be in the building. It speaks to the strength of Billy the Mountain that this minutia isn't detrimental, but rather just a feature of a huge tale that has some of the most anthemic refrains found in the Zappa catalog to date. Each character has their own specific musical tag, and the musical theater aspect of those recurring melodies is often used to great comedic effect. Oh, fuck, I'm gonna need a truss. Oh, listen, that only goes to show you, and it'll show you once again, that a mountain is something you don't want to fuck with. You don't want to fuck with. Don't fuck around. It's not a piece that you can just try a few minutes of and decide if it's up your alley or not. You've got to stick with it with no distractions and preferably hear it a few more times just to let the hidden joys reveal themselves. If it weren't so damn long, I'd think that this bit would be a no-brainer for any Zappa compilation. When compared to the rest of the material on the album, it almost feels as if this was just a very long single with four generous bonus tracks on the B-side. So now that I'm done filleting the Billy the Mountain suite, we might as well pay attention to those other tunes. There's another inside joke about a commercial that aired often in the Los Angeles area in Eddie Are You Kidding? And really that's about all the song is. Pretty cool and rather straight-ahead rock music sets the scene, but beyond the parody elements, there isn't much going on here that would seem to matter much to anyone that did not originate from that area in the early 70s. You'll also run into a very controversial track known as Magdalena. Again, musically, it's a pretty cool and bouncy rock song. Lyrically, though, it's the graphic depiction of a man that places his hands on his teenage daughter in a very inappropriate way, and that's about as mild as I can put it, as I have a hard time imagining that Frank woke up one day and thought, boy, it'd be fun to write about a guy that works in a syrup factory and fondles his daughter's breasts. I have to imagine that this is yet another anthropological writing depicting a very real situation that Frank was somehow made aware of. The words are the most disturbing that I've heard from the vaudeville-era mothers, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is the very track that puts people specifically off of Flo and Eddie as vocalists. 
Howard Kalin is the co-writer here, and this doesn't sound like anything in the Turtles canon, so I'm left to surmise that some of these extreme lyrics come from the character of Eddie. The biggest drag about the track, besides the possibility of this being someone's true story, is just how insidiously catchy the chorus is. This could have been a real highlight, and instead, a sane person might get mad at themselves for having the melody stuck in their head. And that same conundrum applies. Can we really be upset at Frank for documenting a possibly real situation that he did not personally have any hand in, even if it might disturb us? Thankfully, those two songs are bookended by comparatively arena rock-esque readings of Colony Vegetable from Absolutely Free and Dog Breath from Uncle Meat. The latter is especially a highlight here. Flo and Eddie are at their tonal and harmonic peak with their handling of the previously almost disposable lyrics. Drummer Ainsley Dunbar is absolutely on fire, and Frank's ending solo is one of the most scorching examples of his furious fingers we've heard yet. His infamous guitar tone that pushes just the right amount of gain up against a razor-sharp mid-range is really what drives these revamped oldies and ultimately the entire album. The ZFT CD version seems to play around with the EQ of the original just a bit. The original wasn't a sonic wonder, but it would seem that the extra boost on the low end and the extra crispy high end is the best we'll ever be hearing out of this live document, unless the multi-tracks were remixed from the ground up, and in that case, I wouldn't mind hearing the entire Billy the Mountain. And with such a give-or-take second half, I have to wonder if it all made much more sense in the context of the entire August 1971 show. I'm not sure what would make me appreciate the lyrical contents of Magdalena, but it's possible that hearing the entirety of the gig might not make them seem like such a focal point. It's a cool record overall, but it could use a little breathing room. These 45 minutes beat you over the head and it can be a bit fatiguing. Just Another Band from LA can be seen as everything that one would either love or hate about the Flo and Eddie period, but it's got some undeniably brilliant moments. It reaffirms that, yes, when they got all of the groupie chatter out of the way, this brand of mothers could really cook. Fans of Frank's more strange and angular instrumental pieces would be highly disappointed with this album, though. Again, look at it as an extended single for Billy the Mountain, and you'll probably be right as rain. In the context of the big song, it's really just the extension of 200 Motels, isn't it? ZFT CD number 15, Waka Jawaka, released by Frank Zappa in July of 1972.
Zappa was pushed off of a stage by a crazed fan and was seriously injured. Confined to a wheelchair, the big Zappa song took an abrupt turn with Waka Jawaka. The Mothers of Invention name disappeared, and with it, so did Flo and Eddie, and most of those players. In a way, the reprisal of Dog Breath at the end of Just Another Band from L.A. was almost a harbinger. We're heading back to the instrumentally complex stuff. Hold on to your butts. Waka Jawaka is one of a few albums in Frank's career that folks refer to as jazz. It's true that it shares some elements in common with many types of jazz, but it helps to remember that Zappa rarely tackled any type of music in a traditional way. I spent a good portion of the week listening to this album and trying to come up with reasons why this either was or was not a jazz album. The only reason that I could come up with was Frank said it wasn't, and I don't think he was doing it just to be ornery. However, if you play the massive opening epic Big Swifty for the average person on the street and ask them what they're hearing, they're likely going to tell you this is jazz. Maybe with a few more bitching guitar solos than usual, but to the untrained ear, this is jazz. gotta talk about the song called Your Mouth. I'm not sure what Frank Zappa's obsession with that portion of the face is all about, but I'm pretty sure it's a massive part of that conceptual continuity that the hardcore fans like to comb for clues about, like me. But this is just a killer rhythm and blues track with a great hook and exceptional vocals from Sal Marquez and Chris Peterson. Wouldn't sound out of place next to the Bob Durow-led schoolhouse rock tunes, really. Hardly ever hear anyone talking about this tune, and that alone speaks volumes about the consistently great nature of Frank's big song. signatures abound on this release. We have some familiar faces like Don Preston and Ainsley Dunbar, but we always have the soothing and buttery keys of George Duke, a gent that would be one of the most popular of all of Zappa's players. It's also worth mentioning that Jeff Simmons appears again on the intriguingly schizophrenic It Might Just Be a One-Shot Deal, a tune that doesn't seem to make much sense on its own, but works beautifully as a bridge between Your Mouth and the closing track. It's important to remember that Jeff Simmons quitting the band was not just a major component of the making of 200 Motels, it was a big part of the plot itself. It might just be a one-shot deal as a piece where cowboy chords collide with big brassy tones, fake German accents, and ukuleles. The most real estate on this album, though, is taken up by the opening and closing instrumentals. The front cover of this album alludes to Hot Rats, and this does seem to be an extension of some of the vibes from the second half of that album. The instrumentals don't seem to be as etched in stone as, say, Peaches and Regalia, but they are so wondrously adventurous that they are very hard to get tired of. to imagine if you only know Frank Zappa as the guy with the potty mouth who did the Valley Girl song with his daughter, but the real star of Waka Jawaka is the rich brass. 
Nearly every woodwind you can realistically think of makes an appearance here and steals the show from whatever's being played next to it. Intriguingly though, Ian Underwood is nowhere to be found. He was Frank Zappa's former Brass King. As I often don't obsess over lineup changes with Frank, I've never known whether or not Ian comes back, but I'd never seen him as a replaceable cog in Frank's machine. It was only upon checking out the liner notes to write this piece that I even realized that he wasn't the guy making all the cool brass come to life here. Waka Jawaka isn't talked about much, but it's a very important Frank Zappa record. For arguably the first time, every aspect of the sound quality is an audiophile's dream, and Frank doesn't spend any time pandering to the listener for commercial reasons. This was clearly an album that he wanted to make, and he saw no reason to compromise while he healed up. Every aspect of it is impeccable, and with so much musical exploration within the jazzy confines, it's next to impossible to get sick of, and beyond your mouth? These don't really feel like songs or pieces with defined beginnings and ends. One could probably play this album on a loop a few times and not even realize that they'd done so, as there's so little repetition. This is just a relentlessly pleasant album. And if Freak Out and We're Only In It For The Money and Hot Rats were the first few releases, movements within the big song that I referred to as masterpieces, Waka Jawaka is probably the fourth one that I would place in the category of absolutely brilliant, completely indispensable, and unarguably essential. If only more Zappa fans saw it that way, but hey, this is my journey. I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is just beautiful stuff, and I'm glad that the ZFT CD version does such a proudly pristine job with the sound. I wouldn't recommend that anybody begins their Zappa journey with Waka Jawaka. I mean, start at the beginning. But it would make a darn fine third or fourth grab, right? Week 9, ZFT CD number 16. The Grand Wazoo, released by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in November of 1972. Right where Waka Jawaka left off, the first few bars of the title track to the Grand Wazoo come in, reminding me of Pink Floyd's Any Color You Like, and then it's just bigger, jazzier, brassier than before, crisp and huge. The themes seem to change every few bars. In fact, it's so much like Waka Jawaka that it's hard to find new things to say. The musicianship is slightly more mature sounding, and it feels welcoming yet uncompromising. There's very little on the Grand Wazoo that might annoy a passenger on a car ride that wasn't hip to Zappa. There's also very little to jump out and grab him either. As a largely instrumental work, it plays like great background music. The few times that we get a couple of vocal bars, they're usually following existing musical themes that are already being played by another instrument, which hasn't been completely common until now. It's some of the easiest to listen to, yet hardest to perform music that Frank has unleashed upon us to date. Much 
Much has been made of the digital version swapping the positions of the first two tracks. Some felt that this decision was made because the title track packed a bigger punch as an opener than for Calvin and his next two hitchhikers, which opened the vinyl edition. That may be true, but my pet theory is that for Calvin has a bit of, how do you say it, musique concrète going on, and the dynamics are just bigger. On a vinyl record, one would get the most out of that dynamic range by placing it closer to the outer edge of the LP. On a CD, it doesn't really matter. Again, it's merely a theory. I've tried swapping the two around to hear the original running order, but Calvin does feel like a slightly out-of-place kickoff to what is a pretty steady album in terms of vibe. I'd love to talk about the players on this record, but there's more than 20 of them and the liner notes don't really break down who's doing what. I could say that the album is equally owned by the relentless percussion, the ever-present woodwinds and brass, and Frank popping up when least expected with a jarring solo that slaps your attention right back to the album if your mind should start to wander. The most instantly gripping cut to these ears is Cletus Auritus Auritus. Or is that backward? Cletus Auritus Auritus, which feels like all of the album's biggest strengths rolled into one delicious three-minute ball, but, you know, with some ragtime tack piano to boot. The plunking section of straightforward piano chords brings you a bit of normalcy, and I defy anyone to resist the main theme's reprisal being sung in a la-la-la manner. What begins as another out-of-this-universe cut is grounded by some compositional tricks to put the listener at ease. There really isn't a non-highlight amongst these five monstrous cuts, yet much like Waka Jawaka, I couldn't really recommend it to a beginner as it's not the most well-rounded representation of Frank. However, it's highly enjoyable and even beautiful in some places especially the mellow, blessed relief that eases you out of the album, featuring some of the most calming, descending woodwind melodies you're likely to ever hear. The actual compact disc itself is no slouch. I've had a barely played vinyl edition of this album for years that I rarely got around to checking out, but this presentation is so crisp and warm that I don't feel as if I'm missing out on anything. It just feels like home, and I'd imagine that the album is another audiophile's dream. It's every bit the equal of Waka Jawaka, only bigger. The Grand Wazoo is a masterpiece in its own right. It's not one of the most talked about Zappa releases, but if it were, again, the only album he'd ever made, he'd still at least be a historical footnote with a genre-hopping record of this caliber. I don't imagine that it appealed to those that looked to him for anti-establishment lyrics, and it would be the last heavily instrumental record for a little while in the big song, so... Savor it. ZFT CD number 17, Overnight Sensation, by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, released September of 1973.
and out of the ether, this rock-solid venture into relatively commercial territory drops right out of the sky. Emphasis on rock. This music is clearly geared to sound great on FM rock radio, and it probably did if it got much airplay at all. I don't know, I wasn't there. Right out of the gate, Camarillo Brillo shows up with more repetition than we've heard since the days of Freak Out. It's funky as hell, and Frank even repeats a few catchy verses for those that weren't paying close enough attention the first time. And next up is the relatively well-known I'm the Slime, with the first appearance of the soulful female backup singers. Yet another funky tour de force, George Duke lays down some understated work on the keys underneath Frank's proto-rap about the evils of television. And that searing guitar solo... not to talk about this movement in the big song, you know, track by track, because these are definitely delivered to you as songs. In capital letters, songs. And it wasn't always that way in the prior movements. I suppose that I should point out that just because the music in this movement seems to be a bit easier to digest does not mean that it's actually easy or simple. There's just more repetition and more easily identifiable themes. Take Dirty Love, for example, a fairly raunchy ditty that leaves no questions about the intent. The narrator wants your dirty love, and your mother has sexual relations with dogs. Okay, maybe there was a reason this stuff didn't get a lot of airplay. 50-50 is probably the least talked about cut on this biscuit. Starting out with a type of organ one might usually hear at a baseball game, there's a positively insane vocal from Ricky Lancelotti and a big section where each of the musicians gets a little bit of room to stretch out. Now, quite interestingly, Ian Underwood is back, and he's brought with him the queen of the vibes, Ruth Underwood. She's one of the most celebrated musicians that Frank would ever work with. And when Frank's not premiering his brand new, very deep voice, his singers are positively unhinged. Ricky Lancelotti also delivers another lead vocal in the very popular Zombie Wolf that would make you believe he's a certified lunatic. It's somewhere between Beefheart and Arthur Brown. He's just the right combination of performing as directed and completely unhinged. In fact, when he opens his mouth, he tends to steal the attention away from the song itself. I have to wonder if Zombie Wolf would be half as celebrated with another vocalist. Based on some track lists I've seen, I'll eventually find that out in the future. Otherwise, it's the track that does the least for me on the album, but that's a bit like choosing your least favorite child. Overnight Sensation is a stone-cold classic, and few could argue with the perfection showcased within. I couldn't say where she's coming from, but I just met a lady named Dynamo Hum. She strolled on over, said, look here, bum, I got a $40 bill, say, you can't make me come. You just can't do it. 
Dynamo Hum is one of the more controversial tracks in Frank Zappa's repertoire. Musically, it's another funk masterpiece with a catchy as all get out ascending keyboard line, but the lyrics make some folks uncomfortable. It's the story of two sisters making a bet that a man cannot provide one of them with an orgasm. The narrator just happens to be the person that has to prove who will win the bet. One notion not often mentioned is that while, yes, it's graphic, everything that the narrator does with these ladies is not only consensual, but they have literally and verbally asked him to do so. The story isn't terribly strong when it comes down to repeated listens, but the musical bed is so solid that it's fun enough to focus on if the lyrics aren't your bag. I mean, it's ultimately some fourth grade humor, but judging by the consistency of how often it was requested by audiences, it wasn't Frank's worst idea. I might be moving to Montana soon Just to raise me up a crop of dental floss Raising it up Waxing it down. The warm and inviting tones of Overnight Sensation are brought to a close with the classic song, Montana. It's another story-driven tune about a man who daydreams of moving to the aforementioned state to be a dental floss farmer. He'd have a pygmy pony, just like the piano folks in Lumpy Gravy predicted. Also, the eagle-eared would notice some recurring Zappa topics in the album. The ever-present tweezers, poodles, and ponchos show up for not the last time. This digital presentation is on par with the last two releases in the quality, clarity, and warmth department. It sounds just right, and the points that had previously sounded as if they were cut a bit too hot on the original vinyl seem just like part of the show here, as if modern technology is still unable to contain the ideas and musicality of Frank Zappa. There isn't a hair out of place on Overnight Sensation, and it's an undeniable masterpiece. It's a wonderful entry point into everything Frank had been up to until now, with enough hints for the future that it seems more like a preamble than a wrap-up. It joins the ranks of We're Only In It For The Money and Hot Rats as Zappa Albums You Must Hear Before before You die. Die. Newcomers will be offered more chances to catch musical nuances than ever before with the chorus-driven material, and if the lyrics aren't too bizarre or sexual for them, this could arguably be the ultimate Zappa litmus test. If you can't hang with overnight sensation, Zappa is probably not up your alley. Week number 10, ZFT CD number 18, Apostrophe, released by Frank Zappa in March of 1974. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the same cloth and mostly the same session as Overnight Sensation, this is another highly accessible entry point into Frank Zappa's work. It's often seen as the other half of that previous record, and there's no plausible reason as to why they needed to be separated at all, if you want to make an argument for the big song and everything connecting. Overnight Sensation relating to apostrophe? <laughs> Hard to do better than that. One of the first things that comes to mind to say about this record after spending a week with it, if I were to play this around someone who'd never heard of Frank at all, would this actually be truly accessible? There's still tempo changes galore, instrumental interludes where you wouldn't predict one to be, decidedly non-standard subject matter for lyrics, etc. So, uh, is this really that great entry point that I thought it was, or... Am I just finally getting acclimated to the fast-paced tempo of Zappa's big song? I have no idea, and regardless of what the truth might be, from where I'm sitting, Apostrophe is just highly enjoyable. The opening four tracks, which are Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, Nanook Rubs It, St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast, and Father Oblivion, run together in one big suite about a man who is blinded by urine-soaked snow in his attempts to cure himself by stealing the fake butter from a pancake breakfast. The first two bits are slow and funky with amazing guitar breaks to punctuate each narration, and they were edited together for a shorter single that actually put Zappa on the map for some radio stations. The second two sections take off at a breakneck pace with inhuman performances. <laughs> this 10 minutes is exceptionally representative of all that is Zappa up to this point. If this is truly one large song, it's definitely finding new ways to build and keep itself from boring me or really any listener. At St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast, the rice stole the margarine and wheeled on the bingo cards and blew a velotrine. I saw a handsome parish lady make her entrance like a queen. Why she was totally Chanel and her old man was a Marine. Cosmic Debris is one of the most famous tracks here. Much like the slow and funk-infused groove of I'm the Slime, the sung-slash-spoken lyrics are about a different type of brainwashing, leaving behind the television critiques for a takedown of fake gurus and cult leaders instead, complete with some questioning words about the origin of the guru's poncho. A great chorus backed by the Ikeettes, meeting one of Frank's best blues-rooted solos makes this one an instant standout and classic. Now is that a real poncho or is that a Sears poncho? Don't you know, you could make more money as a butcher. So don't you waste your time on me. There's a short bit called Eccentrifical Force, 
with a vocal delivery not unlike the one heard early on in Trouble Every Day, which leads right into the title track of this album, which is a power trio jam between Frank, Jack Bruce, and Jim Gordon, and that's about as avant-garde as apostrophe gets. Even when it's weird, it's still pretty easy to swallow and follow along with. There were tons of musicians on this album, just like the last two. Four drummers and just as many bassists, without individual credits, make it difficult to zero in on who's really stealing the show at various times. But it's safe to say that when Ruth Underwood's unmistakable melodic percussion pops up, she's given Frank himself a run for his money in the MVP department. An unexpectedly catchy piano-led tune pops up in the back quarter of the album called Uncle Remus, which is a co-write with George Duke, and the surprising gospel overtones can be a real shock to the system after seven tracks that kept you guessing. At first I thought it might be a disposable transitional piece, but it's such an effective little tune that it's often still name-checked by Zappa scholars as a highlight on an album full of high points. Just before dawn And knock the little jockeys Off the rich people's lawn And before they get up I'll be gone, I'll be gone Closing the record is a piece that I didn't think much of on first listen, which is known as Stinkfoot. Musically, it's cool enough, retreading some of that jazz and blues-injected funk heard elsewhere, but the lyrics over the top about having stinky feet don't tend to beg for repeated listens. However, it's the intersection of so many of the feels from the last two albums, or movements in the big song, as it were, that it feels like a big climax. Frank certainly knew what he was doing, introducing the words conceptual continuity into his musical canon for the first time. More poodle talk, a lyrical refrain from the earlier Dirty Love, and a final reminder that the apostrophe is the crux of the biscuit. Put all of those things together, and this is where all previous roads intersect. And if you haven't been following along, it's a harmless little song about feet that don't smell great. In some ways, it's another simultaneous showing of highbrow, lowbrow lyrics. As a dog, which shouldn't be able to talk, tells a man what he can and cannot do. This could be a massive clue that the things that fly in the face of your personal interests don't matter anyways, or it could just be a few silly couplets framing a bunch of rad guitar solos. <laughs> the ZFT issued CD sounds as fantastic as the last few releases did, warm and inviting, pushing certain darker tones into a friendly overdrive. It's as much of a classic as Overnight Sensation, really, and the only drawback to both of them is that they really should inhabit the same package as two halves of one whole. Then again, in a perfect world, if these are all one big song, there'd be some insane option where you could buy them all together, strung end to end, right? CD number 19, Roxy and Elsewhere, released by Frank Zappa and the Mothers, came out in September 1974. Thank you. Brian, I could use a little bit more monitor. Hello, hello. Can you turn up any more than that? Hello, hello. Hey. 
All right, before we begin, a bit of history about my relationship with this album. An adult had loaned it to me when I was around 13, and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. As this is one of Frank Zappa's most beloved releases, I've tried it numerous times over the years, but I've always found it to be a bit stunted and a frustrating listen for reasons that I will describe. Don't worry. Please understand that I now enjoy it more than I ever have, but that it took finally seeing the film footage promised to us for decades, which was finally unleashed, for me to really get it. It's great by any other standards, but it's one of the most jagged releases in Frank's catalog. No offense meant when it comes to this particular sacred cow. Also, uh, the current digital version inexplicably offers a drastic and inferior remix of the song Cheapness, so I stuck with the 1992 European CD issue, which is nearly an exact replica of the original LP. I've not heard the ZFT issue disc, and some of the things that I've taken umbrage with may have been dealt with on this new version. That being said, People love Roxy and Elsewhere, and it's easy to see why. It's a seemingly holy live album, and Frank built on the basic tracks in the studio with multiple overdubs to push already fiery performances into the stratosphere. The lineup is amazing. Two untouchable drummers, Ruth Underwood stealing the show at nearly every turn, the soulful vocals of the beloved Napoleon Brock Murphy, the unexplained temporary return of Jeff Simmons? Forget it, this was a well-oiled machine and every single player was the master and or mistress of their respective domain. Roxy begins with a very joined-in-progress opening, as you heard, and Frank explains the lyrical concept behind the highly popular Penguin in Bondage, but also makes mention that he's editing himself for television purposes. The song's words wouldn't have necessarily rung sex toy bells in mind, so it was helpful, but the album screams soundtrack from kickoff, reminding the listener that they are not getting the full story. This is furthered not only by the long jams of Dummy Up, which contains elements of a stage routine known as room service, but we also joined that one midway through, and it fades out as the jam heats up. The banter's fun, if you smoke a college diploma, you get absolutely nothing out of it, and that's a quote-unquote higher education. What do you do with that thing? What do you do with that thing that you have? Look, wait a minute. Even more successful is the following suite, which begins with a wistful ode to the unincorporated California town Sun Village, with the appropriately named Village of the Sun. Though the rhythmic elements tend to change a bit more often than your average radio tune, it's a pretty straight-ahead song for Frank, and I'm a bit surprised that it isn't more popular than it is. Village of the Sun leads right into one of Frank's catchiest and pounding instrumentals. I think you pronounce it Echidna's Arf of You. It contains a turnaround riff that won't leave your head for days. Now that suite is capped off with a nine minute piece known as Don't You Ever Watch That Thing? And for many years, this was the moment I'd sort of check out of the album. It seemed so ponderous, so tedious, and the reminders from Frank that Ruth would be doing something special for the camera, 
It just didn't work on record for me. It'd take me out of an otherwise enjoyable piece of jamming and remind me that, yes, this album is only a portion of the event. This isn't something that had ever stuck out at me with previous Zappa Live albums, which could all get by on musical and lyrical merit. All banter helped the recording to flow. This was the first time I'd heard Frank as showman, and it didn't translate to record for me. I'd spend the rest of the time trying to figure out and guess what Ruth did. Also, I'm not going to tell you what happened. You'll just have to watch Roxy the movie to find out. The third suite is my favorite, though. Frank's ode to monster movies, cheapness, is preceded by an intro where his deep and abiding love for the genre is readily apparent. Meanwhile, the tune itself is one of the most energetic bits in Frank's entire canon up to this point. You can practically hear the beads of sweat dripping off of Napoleon with every exclamation of run to the shelter. That underrated bit of brilliance runs into the badly needed relative chill of Son of Orange County, which understandably imports musical themes from the Orange County lumber truck and brings us smoothly into a slow burn rewrite of a classic from Freak Out, now known as More Trouble Every Day. The only drawback is things are heating up in the chorus of the latter and bam, another fade out. Now listen, when I'm not taking on a project like this, I'm a total vinyl hound. Nine times out of ten, if there's music playing in my house, it's from a record. I get that these fade-outs were probably due to the constraints of what could reasonably fit on one side of wax without compromising the sound quality, but they are incredibly distracting when trying to enjoy Roxy and Elsewhere as a straight-through listening experience. The final bit of Roxy and Elsewhere is the longest, the bebop tango a perverted tango, as Zappa refers to it. While the complex piece is really challenging and a blast to listen to, it's also so heavy on visual participation that it begins to really bore itself into your brain that this is a soundtrack and not an album. Basically, when Roxy and Elsewhere is on, it's Frank and the Mothers at their very best. And when he turns to visual connections, Roxy and Elsewhere becomes disjointed, like a series of jokes that you're not privy to. Everyone interested in Frank's work should hear it at least for the indisputable classics like Village of the Sun, Echidna's Arf of You, and Cheapness. But if you do find it interesting, go for the film version, as that's clearly the originally intended way of digesting this material. As far as Roxy's place in Frank's long song, I hear it as a bridge between the slick perfection of apostrophe and the upcoming one-size-fits-all as, and here's how we did it live, but that's not quite it either. The highs are scrumptious, but as a movement in the larger piece, it's not without its inherent flaws. Thank you very much. Week number 11, ZFT CD number 20, 
One Size Fits All, released by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in June of 1975. Rightfully considered to be one of the highest of the high points in Frank's catalog, One Size Fits All is yet another sort of compendium of all that Frank was able to do best during this period, when he did a big composition, every solo, riff, and lyric really is a home run. And if the song is a more bite-sized nugget, it's a perfectly contained, should-have-been hit. What it also serves to do is to take many of the sounds, moods, themes, and players from Roxy and elsewhere, and just put them slightly more in focus than before. Almost as if Roxy was the rehearsal, and One Size Fits All was the main course. Inca Rhodes, that's your kickoff, and it's a spacey ode to... Well, space. Possible alien activity. George Duke delivers the bulk of the lyrics in a nice falsetto, while Napoleon returns to the microphone for some of the quicker vocals. Ruth's percussion gets a showcase for the eagle-eared, and while in many ways this eight or so minutes is all over the map, it's also a great encapsulation of all of the positive aspects of Frank's big song as of the early 70s, with a guitar solo that would make most prodigies hang their head in shame to boot. surprising to me that the shorter Can't Afford No Shoes didn't end up at least doing somewhat well on FM radio. It's a power chordy stomper about being broke that everybody has been able to relate to at some point, but the harmonies are just generally pleasing to anyone that likes ear-friendly melodies. It's a shame that it's so often overshadowed by the bigger pieces here. It's followed by Sofa Number 1, a very pretty piano-led piece that's not dissimilar to the gospel leanings of Uncle Remus, and there'd also be a reprise at the end of the album with, you know, German lyrics. few years, Frank had been kicking around big pieces in his shows known alternately as Sofa or Divan. I'm not acquainted enough with his live history to know if any of the themes on this album were born of that set stable, but there's, well, a gigantic couch on the cover of this album, so it wouldn't surprise me. Pojama People and Florentine Pogan are served up back-to-back, both dabbling with a slow bluesy flavor that Frank had been toying with often on these last couple of movements in the big song. The former is very cool with another guitar showcase that only barely steals the show from the twinkling George Duke piano that it's running up against in the middle. Florentine Pogan is a bit more instantly memorable with another one of those crushingly heavy 70s guitar riffs that were becoming increasingly present in Frank's work. Which does make me think about how odd it was that... Frank could be so good at creating rock and roll despite not really being a big fan of the stuff. Florentine Pogan also has another appearance of some dog themes with a backing vocal of arf 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 cutting through the dense arrangement at one point. And this is worth mentioning as this track's followed by a strange little interstitial spoke 
sung piece called Evelyn, A Modified Dog, which might have a place somewhere in this big song that Zappa's creating, but I have to admit, it's the rare Zappa track that I might not notice if it were missing from the album. It's a bit of a taste of things to come, but not necessarily within the movement of One Size Fits All. She was the daughter of a wealthy Florentine Logan. Freedom and wheat was a adjustable slogan. Now, San Bernardino is probably the most well-known song from this record, as it had a place on the strictly commercial compilation that would be the inroad for many curious Zappa fans in the 90s. Add this to the pile of how did FM radio not pick up on this songs. Often it's mining some territory that's almost reminiscent of early ZZ Top, but with just a few too many twists, turns, and arpeggios to ever be confused as anything but the work of Frank Zappa. The story of potato-headed Bobby who's jailed for public intoxication. There are a few similarities between the description of county jail in this track as there are in Frank's recounting of it in fortunate period in his own life spent behind bars that can be found in the real Frank Zappa book. He got Before this entry into the canon is capped with that aforementioned sofa reprise, there's a really intricate track known as Andy. Now, it should go without saying at this point that musically, the tune is impeccably written to the point of being the most dense arrangement on the album, taking every sound heard in One Size Fits All up until this point and bringing them all to dizzying highs, but... Okay, so it's also about Andy Devine, an actor. But that seems to be a red herring, as many feel that this is uh, about a thong rind, which is basically an indentation made by overworn sandals. Interesting to note, as earlier in the album, shoes weren't part of the budget. The repeated vocal question of, do you know what I'm really telling you, drives into the brain of the suggestible listener that there is a larger theme at work here, and some of that might become a little bit clearer on the following album, but only a little bit. Do you know what I'm really telling you? Is it something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Is it something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Is it something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Is it something that you can understand? One Size Fits All is a highly rewarding and wonderful Frank Zappa album. In some ways, it's more successful than Overnight Sensation and Apostrophe because with many of those lyrics, once you'd heard it a few times, well, you'd kind of heard it, and there wasn't always a ton of stuff to uncover. One Size Fits All gives you all the musical positives of those two albums with the bonus of lyrics that really take a little bit of digging to figure out, and that's assuming that one can figure them out at all. Modified dogs, sofas, aliens, and footwear. Even if it all adds up to nothing, it's a fun and fascinating listen, and the ZFT CD issue is the most cracking sonic representation of the album that I've ever heard. Gone is that distorted warmth of the last few albums. Everything on One Size Fits All is crisp, clean, and clear, sounding exactly as it oughta. 
In some ways, this album is utter perfection. <laughs> Alternately, no matter how many times you play it, you may still feel like there are bits that you simply haven't understood yet. Not quite in the masterpiece pile, but definitely the first record one should check out when they're ready to swim around in something slightly less accessible than the songs about yellow snow and stinky feet. Who am I kidding? It's a masterpiece. ZFT CD number 21, Bongo Fury, by Frank Zappa, The Mothers of Invention, and Captain Beefheart, originally released in October of 1975. Okay, this one's gonna be tough. There's a lot going on with Bongo Fury, but on the surface, and possibly even to the casual listener, it might seem like one of the most straightforward entries into Frank Zappa's entire catalog so far. And Captain Beefheart's too, because this album is credited to both of them. A bit odd as the musicians are definitely the folks that were backing Frank up around this time, though the beloved Ruth Underwood sadly seems to have disappeared without a trace. If one plays this album right after One Size Fits All in the interest of trying to hear the big song, much like Roxy did, this might just seem like a streamlined version of what had come right before it. But in truth, Bongo Fury is just staggeringly normal. It opens with that Beefheart vocal in Debra Cadabra, and it's yet another sort of southern rock blues vamp, but with the prerequisite unexpected middle section that seems to be beamed in from somewhere else entirely. Interestingly, though, we're confronted with some cologne, pronounced Kalagna, and this wouldn't be the last time. Beefheart seems relatively restrained here, and it's not the most memorable opener, it just sort of seems to be like the thing that was built to follow one-size-fits-all's sofa number two, but it does glide perfectly into Carolina Hardcore Ecstasy, a song about a person that enjoys being stomped on with massive shoes for sexual gratification, and it doesn't make much sense to Zappa's manager. Don't let that throw you, though. This is one of the coolest sleepers in the catalog, complete with jaw-dropping three-part harmony and a radio-ready chorused guitar effect. It's a keeper, and people don't mention it nearly as often as it deserves. But the very accessibility of Carolina Hardcore Ecstasy is the overall shortcoming of Bongo Fury. It's so relatively accessible for both of the artists on the cover that when it does get a little strange, like Beefheart's spoken word pieces, Sam with the showing scalp flat top, and Man with the Woman Head, both backed with some slightly avant-garde musical stuff, those seem like the exception rather than the rule. An example would be Poofter's Froth Wyoming Plans Ahead. With a title like that, you'd no doubt expect one of the craziest showcases that Zappa and the Captain could ever cook up, right? Instead, it's 
a fairly normal country-ish vaudeville tune in the vein of Lonesome Cowboy Burt from 200 Motels. Ditto for 200 years old. A slow blues dirge that just sort of sticks around for four minutes without leaving much of an impression. These tracks were inspired by the then-upcoming American Bicentennial and Frank's sneering view of the cash-ins that would no doubt come along with it. But there's some of the rare cases where the subject matter is stronger than the music that accompanies it. takes a rare look back at his early days with the achingly turgid Cucamonga and more bluesy rambles on advanced romance, which honestly doesn't need all of its 11 minutes while still being a really cool spotlight on Beefheart's underrated harmonica skills, plus allowing us to learn more about the many eyes of Bobby with the potato head. It's hard to argue that the most successful track here is Muffin Man, and the title gives most of that song away. It's the story of a man who perhaps liked muffins a bit too much, but then explodes into one of Frank's most classic guitar riffs of all time, including a solo that can peel the paint right off your car. Girl, you thought it was a man, but it was a muffin. He hung around till you found that it didn't know nothing. It pains me to say it, but much like Chunga's Revenge before it, Bongo Fury doesn't add up to much more than a better-than-it-should-be transitional record, but if you're not buying it just for the small handful of really stellar tracks here, it's merely there to make your collection complete. Thankfully, I knew that the next record that would come in the series would be intentionally scaled back, so it wasn't a drag. It just felt like the precursor to the very, very cool album that would follow. The ZFT CD issue sounds very nice, and as the bulk of this album was recorded live in concert, the lines between where the studio work begins and ends starts to get really blurry right around now. I do have to wonder one thing, though. If there was around 40 minutes of completely unfamiliar and relatively normal music performed on the evening that the bulk of this album was captured, how did audiences take to this? Like, I'm saying this all in 2018, and as of right now, if you're a legacy act and you play even two unfamiliar songs, people are making a beeline for the bathrooms. How did Frank keep up playing so much music that no one had heard before and not have the audiences flip out and get frustrated with him? I don't suppose there's an answer that would really satisfy me, but it is worth pondering. Were all of these folks just jazzed to see Zappa do whatever the heck he wants, and in that case... When did we stop feeling that way about concerts? And why? Number 12, ZFT CD, number 22, Zoot Allures, released in October of 1976. 
there's a subset of Zappa fans that will treat Zootalures as one of those, well, his best days were now behind him records. And like most of Bongo Fury before it, Zootalures definitely focuses on the rock leanings of Frank's work. But unlike its predecessor, it brings us back to an album where there's something enjoyable on every single track. Frank had signed on with Warner Brothers Records, and it's not out of the question that he gave them something that would be relatively easy to sell without compromising any of his vision. In this way, Zootalures is a highly successful entry into Frank's big song. The opening cut is wind up working in a gas station, and right out of the gate, you're greeted with a furious tempo and a reminder that if you're offended, you're the idiot. And elsewhere, it's a flurry of frenetic pacing, falsetto vocals, and repetitive chorusing for two and a half minutes. The song takes few prisoners, and it's over before you can really think it through. Speaking of repetition, there's more of it found here than on possibly any other FZ release to date. Not into the slow and menacing groove of The Torture Never Stops? Don't worry, you'll have just shy of ten whole minutes to, <laughs> to get yourself very acquainted with the song. It's a Halloween classic with terribly descriptive lyrics about the unfolding events inside of a miserable dungeon on the Night of the Iron Sausage. Frank really seems to find a stride here with the less is more approach, and this track's one of the finest examples of his minimalist takes on rock music. Plenty of pornographic screams from Dale Bozio, too. an honest-to-goodness verse-course-verse-structured song that appears with Miss Pinky, a catchy ode to the joys of blow-up dolls, especially notable for the return of Ruth Underwood on Synthesizer? Hey, I'll take it. She often steals the show, and musically, the burping low synth tones are definitely the coolest musical component here. to say that every song is a winner on its own terms here. Find Her Finer has a cool and lurching feel, but the lyrics basically amount to act dumb at first and only pull out the intelligence after you've had sexual activity with the lady in question. As with the earlier Magdalena, I have to assume that this is based on something that Frank had overheard or noticed in his unmatched people watching. But the song itself works best if you just don't pay much attention to the lyrical directions, which is probably why it was picked to represent the album via promotional singles. Most lyrics for popular rock tunes from the 1970s don't hold up terribly well when picked apart, and this song wasn't the worst choice to try to sneak onto the radio airwaves. But you've also got a very matter-of-fact and chilling track with Wonderful Wino, a co-write between Frank and Jeff Simmons about a man that tries wine, which eventually ruins his life and ability to control his bodily functions. There's a bit of heart to it, along with the cautionary nature of the song. Frank didn't have much patience for those that tried to excuse bad behavior due to chemical intake, and this is one of the most blunt examples of that outlook that one will find in his music. I went to the country, and while I was gone, I lost control of my body functions on the roller-headed lady's front lawn. I'm so ashamed, but I'm a wino man. I can't help myself. I've been 
drinking all night till my eyes got red. The real highlights here are the three instrumentals, Black Napkins, Friendly Little Finger, and the title track. Friendly Little Finger is tough to describe beyond favoring Eastern modes, which is a rather unpredictable direction for Frank to take, but the other two, when you call them what they are, which is slow and beautiful guitar showcases. It actually sort of cheapens the majesty found within. These are gorgeous and sparkling masterpieces, leaving Frank's in-the-moment guitar compositions in the spotlight. But no bones should be made about the fact that these are the very essence of the best that Frank could do with a rock and roll form. In between all of the words about torture, nihilistic sex, and drinking, there are genuinely beautiful and moving musical passages. It's really up to the listener to decide which one they'd rather focus on. Disco Boy closes the album, and there's a bit of a novelty air to it, sort of an early setup for the later successes of Dance and Fool. Sure, it skewers the then-burgeoning disco culture, and not for the last time, but it's also a very catchy song about acting dumb on the dance floor to attract a mate. You're not going to find any actual disco music on this track, but there are plenty of points where we sneakily sink back into bluesy tropes seems like it would have been popular on, say, the Dr. Demento show, but one should never confuse Frank's novelty tunes with anything resembling disposable music. Heck, he's on record saying that he only attached words to the songs because people seem to enjoy it. Musically, Disco Boy is a pretty rad movement in Zootalures. And Zootalures is a perfectly enjoyable Frank Zappa record that makes a lot of sense where it is in the discography and the big song. It's a bit smarter and easier to swallow than Bongo Fury, but it also doesn't overstay its welcome like some of the more confounding moments of the album that would follow. <laughs> On a technical level, it's probably got more analog compression per square inch than any of his other 70s releases up till this point, but the ZFT digital issue is the best I've ever heard it sound. That compression was probably there to ensure that it'd sound great on the radio, but some pressings had taken the warmth and made it appear muddy. Odd, considering that there are likely less musicians on each track here than at any point prior. Many songs are just Frank playing nearly every instrument, while Terry Bozio... Where is it Bozio? Eh, while he rules the drum throne with an iron fist. Or sausage. Or pickle. It's very enjoyable and highly underrated, even by me. Zoodalers is classic Frank. It isn't quite an untouchable masterpiece, but some of the smaller movements within it are. ZFT CD 23. Zappa in New York. Released in March of 1978? Pfft. It's like two years since the last official record. Here 
it was the blackest night There was no moon inside You know the stars ain't shining Cause the sky's too tight I heard the scary wind I seen some ugly trees There was a werewolf walking along the side of me I'm reading on bed You know I ain't no sissy Got a big titty girl in by the name of Chrissy Talking about her in my bike Frank tried to fulfill a contract by delivering a multi-album set called Lather to his record label. They declined to go for a quadruple record, and a very complex and messy situation happened as a result. Ultimately, Frank sectioned the material off into their own albums, keeping a general theme to each one. For example, most of Lather's live recordings ended up here on Zappa in New York. It crossed my mind to insert Lather here and go away from the numbering system, but the idea is to try to listen to the big song as presented presented by the Zappa Family Trust, so no dice. I'm going to accept this album as it was eventually delivered as the official version. We've got to get it out of the way right off the bat, though. Warner Brothers recalled this album quickly after its release and absolutely massacred the thing. They were concerned about a possible lawsuit, dropped a song, and mucked about with track listing without Frank's approval. Frank was not happy about this, and many of the next few albums were dramatically affected by the ire that this sparked in him. When the time came to put this live album out on CD, Frank reinstated the offending song and extended the running time by a whopping 30 minutes. We join an especially hot band in progress with the eternally popular Titties and Beer. This opener is a funky back and forth between Frank, playing a motorcycle man, and drummer Terry Bazio, who's playing the devil. In short, the motorcycle man was enjoying some beer in the breasts of a young lady named Chrissy. The devil appears out of nowhere and eats the woman and the beer. The motorcycle man tries to make a deal with the devil to retrieve them and hijinks ensue. Unfortunately, this rendition keeps going off script for playful inside jokes between Frank and Terry, and once you've heard it, you heard it. Definitely amusing, but not something one would want to play every day. Unexpectedly, though, the band then transitions into an extended cruising for burgers from Uncle Meat with one of Frank's increasingly incendiary guitar excursions. We fade out to a hard stop before the rather New Age influenced I Promise Not to Come in Your Mouth, which segues directly into Punky's Whips. Not be pouting for me. This 10 minute jobber is a long rumination on Bazio's crush on a guitarist named Punky Meadows, though Terry Bazio consistently stresses that he isn't gay. Over and over. Warner Brothers presumably was concerned that Punky's label would sue somebody, and honestly, the fact that it was deleted from the album is basically the most interesting thing that the song has to offer. The song itself is just a bit interminable and may stand as one of the very few Zappa pieces that I actively find myself truly disliking. It isn't the subject matter, either. That isn't just the subject matter. It just kind of does nothing. Trying to get by on the liking a guy but not being gay motif and an introduction from Don Pardo. I can't support Warner's decision to censor Frank's art, but I also can't say that there's much reason for it to have become such a bone of contention. Meanwhile, a song that Frank would perform often in concert is introduced here with Honey, Don't You Want a Man Like Me? Yet another story song of a rather idiotic man in hopes of sexual activities. 
It seems like a slightly dumber take on some ground that Frank had covered plenty of times over. The New York audience loudly cheers at lines like, she gives him some head, so I'm clearly in the minority, and honestly, I can't say many positive things about the long-winded story of the Illinois Enema Bandit. Ray White makes his first appearance on one of Frank's albums, and he does a pretty stunning job with the limited vocal lines he's given, but that's about it. Another Don Pardo intro, another scatological story, another set of cool guitar solos, for the better part of 13 minutes. I really like the instrumentals, but the vocal tracks on this first disc of this movement just feel as if Frank is spinning his wheels. For the first time, I get the impression that Frank Zappa, the composer, was taking a backseat to Frank Zappa, the entertainer. I'm sure that it was all very cutting edge when first performed in 1976, but it feels much, much less timeless than any of the albums that have preceded it. The good news is that the second disc offers a lot more to love, ripping right into a sprightly reading of I'm the Slime with an especially excited Don Pardo cameo. Somehow this drops us right into an unexpected synth-driven reading of Uncle Meat's Pound for a Brown. The challenging and disturbing Sturm and Drang of Manx Needs Women, right through to the Black Page number one, a piece that was largely a drum solo and intentionally written to be as complex as possible. Terry Bazio and Ruth Underwood turn in a percussion duet for the ages here. This bit of the album works exceptionally well. The familiar songs are invigorated with a new energy and the new cuts are challenging and unpredictable. These reminders of Frank's earlier and more difficult material are especially welcome after a few albums worth of very good, but also increasingly obvious material. And in another interesting turn of events, that nearly extraterrestrial sounding black page drops you off just in time for a pretty faithful run through of... Big Leg Emma? I'll tell you, if I were in this audience, that initially non-album single would have been the last thing that I could have predicted that he would have pulled out of the bag, and I especially wouldn't have predicted that it would have been closely followed by a horn-driven version of Sofa from One Size Fits All. If this version sounds like it should have been the closing theme from Saturday Night Live, it's likely because there were actually members of the SNL band in that evening's lineup. Big Leg Emma and Sofa are some of Frank's more palatable and easy numbers, which one would probably need before they were dropped into a sequel to The Black Page. It's nearly unfathomable that this piece was performed so accurately in concert, considering that some of the musicians were only ever there for those New York dates. It's no secret that Frank openly and liberally applied overdubs to live material all of the time, but before you can successfully overdub anything, you'd need a clean and workable basic track. Hats off to this band. 
I feel like I owe each and every one of them a round of drinks, and I'd love to tell you what that's like, but there simply isn't other music similar to the two versions of Black Page found here. Stunning pieces of music that might not be the kind of thing you'd blast out of a convertible while driving to the beach, but if you're really focused in on them, there's little else that can compare to the level of composition mastery that these tracks must have taken to construct, not to mention the discipline needed to perform any part of any of them. track, any sane listener would be thankful for the relative normalcy of an extended take on The Torture Never Stops. This rendition sees the main riff being delivered via flute, and beyond some extra instrumentation, this version isn't all that different from the one found on Zoot Allures, but in the grand scheme of the big note, the big song, it's interesting to have this refrain appear again so quickly, with the lyrics being focused on setting a scene rather than delivering a direct story, I don't find myself tiring of this particular long, slow burn of a vamp. The album closes up shop with a long piece based on an earlier unreleased composition that was formerly known as Approximate, and is now delivered as The Purple Lagoon. It's a pretty fantastic way to go out. More challenging tempo shifts, flurries of notes that don't feel as if they belong at first, but eventually adding up to a whole that can't work without every single one of the many solos, of which bassist Patrick O'Hearn clearly wins the MVP award here. A pretty wonderful ending to a very strangely paced live document. Zappa in New York is the very definition of a mixed bag. All of the players exceed the constraints of what humans should be able to do with musical instruments, but it's some of the writing itself that comes up short here. I hope that this will be an exception, but I can see why people start jumping ship right after one size fits all. The releases have been woefully inconsistent afterwards, but as always, with patience, some really fantastic stuff is always hiding in the piece. And this current extended digital version is reportedly very close to the master that Frank prepared for the CD market. And despite a bit more digital compression and reverb than I was expecting, it sounds really nice. Big and open. It's a very nice sounding document of these gigs, but so far, this is one of the least essential Zappa releases I've found. After thumbing through that Zaftig discography book, it appears that there is very little here that one couldn't procure in a superior form elsewhere if it were absolutely necessary. But hey, Frank was a much smarter guy than me, so I have to assume that this is going to make perfect sense heading into the next release. Even the least fascinating stuff has seemed like important transitional moves, so I'm intrigued to see where such a huge division between the high and lowbrow will take me next. And folks, that's it for this week's episode of Discography. In the next episode, I'll be starting with some more of the contractual obligation albums for Warner Brothers that Frank delivered with Studio Tan. 
discography is written by me, Mark with a C. Let's say you enjoy what I do. You like when I talk about stuff. Great. I talk about stuff a lot. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can get in touch with me at MarkFi. That's M-A-R-C-F-I. As in there's lo-fi, hi-fi, mid-fi, and MarkFi. On Facebook, I'm Facebook.com slash Mark with a C music. You can also hear some of the music that I make at markwithac.bandcamp.com. And if you'd like to support all the entertainment creations that I make, and I make a lot of them, you can do so at patreon.com slash markwithac. Thanks to my Patreon supporters, I was able to go to Canada and make my most recent album, Obscurity, with my dream producer, Jordan Zadarozny. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you so much in advance for your continued support. It's amazing to me that there's an audience here nowadays where you can just rattle on about your Frank Zappa fandom, but here you are. Our background music and bed music is created by Chris Zabriskie. Check him out at chriszabriskie.com. I'll see you next week on Discography. Bye for now, friends. Consequence Podcast Network.